Good evening. We have an incredibly varied show for you tonight. We're talking football, labor strikes, a possible next prime minister, the current prime minister, and Don't Pay UK, that direct action group that everyone from Martin Lewis to Dominic Cummings is talking about. We will be too. I'm joined all evening by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm very well, Michael. How are you? Yeah, very well. Watched my first football match in a very long time yesterday. It was, was very say, exciting. It's not your first one ever because I watched no. us lose the Euros final at yours. Yeah, you watched the men's final with me last year. That was potentially the last full match I watched. Football has finally come home. What the men's team couldn't do last year, the women have managed. They celebrated by crashing a post-match press conference. <laughs> such an immensely likable group of people. Of course, all smiles there, but there were also reminders of the struggle it has been to get women's football taken seriously. Alex Scott was a member of the last generation of England women's footballers. This is what she said after the game. Back in 2018, we were begging people to host in their stadiums a women's game for this Euros. So many people said no. I hope you're all looking at yourselves right now because you weren't brave enough to see the vision. It's worth making that point, actually, Alex, because a lot of people made the comments during the tournament, didn't they? Exactly. Why aren't there bigger stadiums? And it all goes back to 2018. Gabby. And then in 2019, there was a very successful World Cup in France. And I think a lot of those clubs probably thought then we made a mistake. And yeah. today, they've definitely made. I'm telling you, Gabby, I had a conversation yesterday. I'm not standing up at corporate events in front of sponsors anymore begging for them to get involved in the women's game. Because you know what? If you're not involved, You've missed the boat, you've missed the train. Because look at this, it has finally left the station and it is gathering speed. I love that. I mean, I think lots of people, you know, are expecting you're on the BBC. It's a happy event. Let bygones be bygones. But I think she was absolutely right there to say, look, you know, I know you're all going to want to jump on the bandwagon now. This is an enormous success. Over 90,000 people watching it live. I think 17 million people watched it on TV. Enormous. So it's going to be people, you know, trying to burst down that door to get involved in women's football. Alex got there saying, you weren't so interested four years ago, were you? Ash, how significant is this? This is obviously the biggest platform that women's football has had in this country. I read a tweet which said that Ellen White's been playing since women weren't even allowed to be full-time professionals. Alexandra Pop is a qualified zookeeper. And then you've got players who have been academy kids all the way. So that shows you that from the grassroots game and the development side, women's football has changed a huge amount in a really small amount of time. But I think one of the things which made this tournament so, so different is that the journalists, the stadiums, the bookers, everyone got on board. So I don't know about you, but this was one of the most widely publicized and prominently covered women's football tournaments I can remember in my entire life. And I think the fan numbers at Wembley yesterday, I think it was 87,000 people, shows that if you do just 
give the coverage and give the space, there will be an audience that comes, which really, you know, undermines a lot of that very sexist sneering, which used to be the dominant tone in which people talked about women's football. People used to talk about women's football as though it's less enjoyable to watch. Like, you know, you're only there out of some sense of being like woke or politically correct. That's clearly not true. I mean, one, you don't get fans in the terraces out of politeness alone like that. And two, I think anyone watching the match will tell you that it was such a physical, crunchy game, goal mouth scrambles, lots of like quite dirty fouls that I think we got away with. So yeah, fine. And obviously just like really high drama. So those kinds of, you know, sneery efforts to minimize the women's game, I think, you know, will will have died a bit of a death. The proof of the pudding will be in the funding. So now it's going to be, is there going to be the same kind of coverage for the Women's Super League? Are we going to see the Women's World Cup being covered in this kind of way? I think that having such a decisive win for the England team at Wembley does change some things. But to make sure it's not just a flash in the pan, the funding needs to come all the way through. Today saying that the the average salary for a men's Premier League player is three million. So obviously, you know, when you get to right to the top, it's going to be way more than that. But three million for a women's Premier League is 26 grand. So I think that's below the median wage, isn't it? But I imagine, you know, we don't necessarily need to be saying they need to get them all these obscene salaries that the men's players do. But what would it take for the women's Premier League players to have, you know, a decent salary, a sort of above median wage salary, something that sort of gives them status and means that they definitely don't have to worry about second jobs? I mean, it'll probably be a combination of things. One is bigger stadiums, because if you're selling out really massive stadiums week on week, you've got more money coming into the game so that clubs can start paying a lot of money. Secondly, there's going to be the sponsorships, because you have yet to see, outside of American players like Mia Hamm back in the day or Megan Rapinoe, you haven't really seen women players be that kind of face of a sports brand in the same way Neymar or Messi or Ronaldo or Pogba or literally anybody else. I think the third thing is obviously going to come from how much money does the FA put into the national game for the women's side. 26 grand is nothing, really. Whereas for you know the men's national team, they'll often give away their England money to charity because they simply make such a huge amount in the Premier League that they don't actually need it. So hopefully this will be the beginning of a change. One thing that would be really easy to do, actually, UEFA could do it, FIFA could do it, is equalize the prize money for winning a tournament. There's huge amounts of money involved for men's teams winning a tournament like the Euros. There's hardly anything available in the same way for the women's tournament. So that would be another way, relatively easy, because let's face it, UEFA and FIFA, they're not running out of money anytime soon. We can put more money into the game and actually reward these phenomenal athletes, these phenomenal players for a really impressive feat. As workers face a cost of living crisis, bosses are raking it in. Last week, several companies announced record profits. Centrica, which owns British Gas, made £1.3 billion in the first half of this year. That's five times greater than the same period last year. An oil giant Shell made almost £10 billion in the past three months alone. These profits are directly attributable to rising fuel prices, but it's not just energy firms that are raking it in. BT boss Philip Jansen raked in £3.5 million last year, an increase of 32% on the year before. And this provides the context in which 40,000 workers from the BT group have gone on strike. Today is the second of a two-day strike, the first being last Friday. 
It comes after workers rejected a blanket £1,500 pay uplift, which works out as about an average of 5%, or, of course, well below inflation. These are the first national telecom strikes since 1987, and the below inflation pay rise comes as the company recorded profits of £1.3 billion and paid out £700 million in profits to shareholders. To discuss the strikes, I'm joined by Dave Ward, General Secretary of the Communication Workers Union. Thank you for joining us this evening. Good evening, Michael. You heard that I gave a brief introduction to the context of the strike. What else should our viewers be, be aware about here? What's the really significant context that people should get a grasp of? Well, I think the context is a whole range of numbers that demonstrate that they can afford to pay workers uh, a substantial pay rise. So those numbers, I'll add some. So you add the 32% increase of the CEO's own wages, time when he was imposing a pay deal, which on average was worth 4.8% to our members. But that is also against the background that our members never got a pay rise last year. They got a one-off lump sum that wasn't consolidated in their pay. The actual money that went to shareholders was £758 million. And that represented 58% of the overall profits went to shareholders. By comparison, the value of the offer to our members was about 5% of those profits. I mean, this is just staggering stuff. And the other thing you should be aware of is is not only um, ripping off the workforce, they're ripping off customers as well. So at the start of the year, they put up prices by 9% when inflation was running at about 5%. And they announced on the eve of the first strike that they're going to put prices up again for customers by 13% next January. So that will be a 22% increase in prices. I mean, this is just unbelievable that companies can get away with that type of behavior. And I have to say, you know, I mean, they have lost the respect of the entire workforce for their actions. And so, you know, we're, we're out there today. You know, we're saying that our members are disgusted with the behaviour of the company. Uh, These were key workers, Michael, who, you know, there wouldn't have been a home workers revolution without the type of work that our members do, uh, because they do run and maintain the whole of the UK's broadband infrastructure, the telecommunications structure. And, you know, this is how they're treated. And and as you said in your opening uh, introduction, the first time in over 35 years that these members have voted on strike. Another thing that's worth noting is that this is a group of workers who, you know, don't work in big depots. A lot of them work on their own day in, day out, and a lot of them are home workers. So, you know, all credit to them in voting yes when, you know, they, they faced a lot of intimidation from the company. So it, we're, we're in a situation where, you know, we have to now continue this dispute. We're not going to let this guy, Philip Jansen, get off the hook here. I think he thinks that he can get away with this. He's missing in action. That's another thing you should be aware of. He's refusing to negotiate. So we're in a pretty unique position there where the company are not even in the current wave of disputes. At least there's some negotiations going on. This guy is point blank refusing to negotiate. He never faces the media. They just read out bland statements, most of which is completely untrue. So, you know, it's a big issue for us and we're not letting it go. You know, we're going to come back out. There'll be more strike action, but we do want to consult with our members. We're mindful of the current cost of living crisis and we're going to come up with some other tactics that pile the pressure on the CEO and the board. What's the union position on a flat pay rise? Now, I know, you know, £1,500 is not 
good enough. I don't think for any worker that's going to be you know above above inflation. So for everyone, it's a real terms pay cut. But you could argue that in principle, a flat pay rise is quite progressive because it means that proportionately, you know, lower paid workers get more than higher paid workers than if it were just say you know a blanket five percent or nine percent or whatever for everyone. How do you approach that in terms of a flat pay rise or a percentage pay rise? I think you have to look at it on it on its merits. Your first job of any union is to increase the size of the pot that's available. The pot isn't big enough. So we can't really look at it at this point in time until we increase the size of the available pot. I think we would be mindful of the reality of what it means for lower paid workers. So there are some merits in looking at flat pay increases. Um, But I think you've also got to think about maintaining the differentials that might link to the various skills that people have to get to qualify for those grades. So there's a, there's a whole range of things. But now let me be absolutely clear. I don't think that comes into it when the guys imposed this deal, not negotiated it. Um, and, I, and I would say as well, the lowest paid workers, which happen to be call centre workers, who are on you know up to about £20,000, £21,000, they haven't even got the good end of this by having a flat pay rise because actually the reason that they put £1,500 on the table for those workers was they'd fallen behind their own uh, real living wage employer uh, brand, which they have to get to a certain level. That had gone down. So about a £1,000 of that was actually paid back in January just to get them back to the level of a real living wage employer. So those workers, the lowest paid under this deal, actually only got about 2.6% imposed. So I think you've got to take it in the round, but let's focus initially on getting them around the table and at the same time increasing the size of the, the pot of money that's available. It's interesting. I, I hadn't realised that about the, the call centre staff. So this is, this is actually just the minimum they, they could have offered to keep that status. And let's talk about the, the government plans to restrict the rights to strike. I mean, I think especially this applies to RMT workers or rail workers. I'm not sure to, to what extent it applies to your union members. But the question I, I want to ask is about the response to that. So I think the RMT have suggested it could be time for a general strike I suppose our viewers might be confused. What would it mean to have a general strike? Does that mean every worker in Britain, you know, going off work for, for a day? What, what is a general strike? And is it something that can be organised in the kind of economy that we have right now? I think that it's not easy to uh, do that. I think you've got to have an objective. So before, you know, you start talking about that, I think we need to sit down. And I've been speaking to Mick Lynch about this and other trade union leaders. I think we need to set out some very clear objectives. And then I would certainly support putting forward forms of collective action that all workers can participate in, whether they're in a trade union or not. I think the time's come for us to respond to the current government's failure to deal with the cost of living crisis. And this continuation of of this story, this narrative, that it doesn't matter what crisis it is, whether it's the financial crisis 2008, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the cost of living crisis, whether it's the climate emergency, the bottom line is the way these people run the economy and run some of these big companies, workers always end up paying the price for that. That can't continue. So I would support forms of collective action. And I can say to you that there's a number of us that are now talking about that and also talking about the practical steps that might lead to that because there's no point in saying them things if you haven't got a plan to deliver it. And I think the next stage of the discussions that we're having at the moment is to set out how that plan could reach workers across the UK and what what the demands would be. 
we're definitely up for it in the CWU. There's no doubt about that. We've actually led the campaign uh, for a new deal for workers, and that's been about rebuilding trade union power. Uh, that's been about bringing about serious change when politicians won't do any of that, including, unfortunately, the Labour Party. We'll move on to the Labour Party in one moment. First of all, I'm interested in this idea. Was a, a, a form of collective action that all, all workers can join in with whether or not they're a member of a union. Can you give us any inkling of what that might look like? Um, it's a tantalising prospect. I think it's possible. Um, if we do the right planning, if we have the right discussions, if all of the trade unions, if you know supporters like yourself get out there and we publish this, I think it's possible to hold a press conference, get some key players in the room together, uh, do some massive national Zoom meetings to prepare for this, and then say on a given day, every worker in the UK can come out at maybe noon on that particular day and join in a protest with a clear set of demands. Initially, that might be about the cost of living crisis. I think we can also join, I heard you talking earlier on about some of the planned actions against the cost of living crisis. I think we can support that. I think we can use our channels. I think what's important is that we build collectivism. And what I saw during the pandemic, what makes me interested in pushing the boundaries here a bit, but in a practical way that you can actually deliver a real support that will frighten the life out of the, the government is, you know, the Thursday night clap. It, it was, from what I was looking at, it, it was collectivism. And it definitely was being done in support of workers where people saw the value of those workers. I think we can build that again, but with actions that are a bit stronger than that. And I think people will support that. It's all about how you plan it. It's all about how you introduce it. And it's all about unions in the first instance coming to the table, willing to you know join in that collective spirit. I think RMT are up for it. I've been speaking to some other trade union leaders about how we might do that. And we will definitely come up with that program. And I hope the TUC will also support it. That's super interesting. I mean, that's very, um, very hopeful. Let's talk about Labour, something less hopeful, perhaps. They're tying themselves in knots over this wave of strikes. I know Lisa Nandy today was on a CWU picket line. Keir Starmer seemed to initially tell people that if they went on a picket line, they'd get sacked. Now he seems to have taken a step back from that stance. You're affiliated to the Labour Party, aren't you? What's your inkling of what's going on on the inside? And I suppose also, you know, our, our viewers don't have much faith in, in Keir Starmer. What kind of leverage do you have at the CWU or do the more left-wing unions have to actually change the Labour Party's approach to this wave of strikes and the cost of living crisis in general? Well, my take on what's going on uh, with the Labour Party is that the current leadership, Keir Starmer, who you know, has stood on the ticket, as you well know, of a number of pledges, including some that he wrote personally to our members um, because we you know, did a vote. Uh, we didn't actually vote for Keir uh, at the time, but our members took part in a democratic process based on all the candidates setting forward their pledges, uh, which we shared with our membership and with our branches. I don't think any of them that he put forward, one of them for us was the renationalisation of Royal Mail. They've turned that one over. Um, so I think there's a lack of integrity. Uh, the very message that he seems to think is going to win power, I think is actually the weakest point of where they are at the moment. And I think there's a lot of like, they say things, you know, when you're an affiliated union, you hear things being said publicly that are not always the same privately. And we're not putting up with that anymore. You know, I mean, our members will ultimately decide and our reps and branches will ultimately decide whether we stay affiliated. I've always felt that sitting at the back of that, there would be people like Peter Mandelson, 
who we've experienced in the past directly when he was the biz secretary of state. And there's a bit of me sort of saying, don't let them get what they want. But I'm not sure how long we can continue to just sit sit back and let these things happen. I do think that there is a change amongst some of the people in the Labour leadership. As you said, Lisa Nandy was out on picket lines today. There was a number of other MPs that were out on picket lines. Um, and I think hopefully, you know, we've had some conversations today, not just about being on a picket line, but what is it they're going to say against the background of, say, our dispute at the moment? Are they going to come out and call out the CEO, Philip Jansen? Are they going to show that they've got the courage to stand up for working people by pointing out all the things that I've been talking about tonight uh, on your show? And I think that, for me, means a lot. So, you know, let's see what happens in the next couple of days. But we expect them to stand up for working people. If they don't, they'll pay the price for that. Dave Ward, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Solidarity to your members. And I hope your plan for some sort of general strike or mass collective action, I really hope it comes to fruition because this is, this is exactly what we need right now. Yeah, we'll come back and talk about that. Uh, give us a few weeks. We're talking intently with a lot of trade unions leaders about this now. So something Make sure we're the first to know, Dave. That's all I ask of you. Okay. Speak to you soon. <laughs> Rishi Sunak's campaign to be the next Tory leader is dead in the water. Tory members don't like him, and his claim to be the most electable candidate has floundered after a series of dud debates. But the former Chancellor isn't going to go down gracefully, and as he fights for breath in a doomed contest, he's taken a predictable turn. A sharp one to the right. The pitch has included swinging tax cuts. I've always said that we need to help people with the cost of living over this autumn and winter. So on top of the plans I announced as Chancellor to get people £1,200 of help, now that bills are going to be higher than we thought, it's right that we go further. And as Prime Minister, what I want to do is cut VAT on energy bills to provide a little bit of extra help for people over the autumn and winter. But today I've been setting out my radical vision for where I want to take the economy after we get inflation under control. I want to cut income tax by 20%. That's one of the most far-reaching cuts to income tax that we've seen. We'll do that responsibly over time, continuing to reduce our borrowing, and we'll do it by growing the economy, taking advantage of our Brexit freedoms, and getting our businesses to invest more and innovate more through the tax reforms that I'm going to put in place. That's a massive U-turn. Sunak has spent the whole campaign so far attacking Liz Truss for unfunded tax cuts. Now he's promising the biggest income tax cut in 30 years. Of course, tax cuts will mean less money for services, so a Sunak premiership would damage us all. But the damage from Sunak's right turn would not be felt equally, and the usual suspects have found themselves scapegoated in Rishi's campaign. First up are, you guessed it, immigrants to Britain. No prizes if you got that one correctly. On this front, Sunak has promised to increase the number of deportations, winning him headlines like this in The Express. Sunak. I'll kick 5,600 foreign criminals out of Britain. So how will he do this? Well, at the moment, a foreign national who serves a jail sentence of 12 months or more can be considered for deportation. Sunak wants to lower the threshold to six months, meaning that people risk deportation for relatively minor crimes like shoplifting low-value items. It also means that someone could be deported on the basis of a sentence handed down by a magistrate rather than a judge. It's all incredibly grim, but Sunak is not the first person to have come up with this idea. The Guardian report this, 
The idea of halving the sentence threshold for deporting overseas offenders has been considered by the Home Office under Priti Patel, but has not been taken forward in part because it was felt those jailed for relatively minor offences would often be able to thwart deportation under human rights laws. Which is presumably why Sunak has set his sights on human rights legislation. We clearly have a problem with human rights law in this country that is making it difficult for us to achieve our objectives. That's why we're passing a British Bill of Rights, which will help with all of these things. That's why I've suggested moving away from the ECHR definition of asylum to the Refugee Convention definition, which is still an international legal standard, but but narrower. If we do these things, we will be able to make progress on this problem. So when it comes to asylum, the fact that we have too many human rights means too many people get in. And when it comes to deportation, it means that not enough people get thrown out. How irritating for the Tories that we have to treat human beings with human rights. Migrants are not the only group to get caught in the crosshairs of Rishi's dying campaign, though. This is a quote from a speech he gave this weekend. What's the point in stopping the bulldozers in the green belt if we allow left-wing agitators to take a bulldozer to our history, our traditions, and our fundamental values, whether it's pulling down statues of historic figures, replacing the school curriculum with anti-British propaganda, or rewriting the English language so we can't even use words like man, woman, or mother without being told we're offending someone. It's not us who are the aggressors. We have zero interest in fighting a so-called culture war, but we are determined to end the brainwashing, the vandalism, and the finger-pointing. Too often, existing legislation is used to engage in social engineering to which no one has given consent. The worst offender in this regard is the 2010 Equality Act conceived in the dog days of the last Labour government. It has been a Trojan horse that has allowed every kind of woke nonsense to permeate public life. It must stop. My government would review the act to ensure we keep legitimate protections while stopping mission creep. Our laws must protect free speech, block biological men from competing in women's sport, and ensure that children are allowed to be children. Ash, that's a lot of dog whistles and a lot of scapegoats to fit into a couple of paragraphs. What do you make of this turn by Rishi Sunak? Kind of desperate, also kind of scary. Did Julia Hartley Brewer write this? I mean, in particular, that last paragraph about women's sports and single-sex spaces and allowing children to be children. The only thing that I can really think of applies to the allow children to be children thing is maybe this relatively new American import of a moral panic about children being taken to drag queen library reading hours. That's the only one that I can really think of. And if that is the kind of reference that Rishi Sunak is making, that points towards a real pivot towards a very, very online, very radicalized section of the far right. Because it's not kind of, you know, your envelope stuffing, you know, shyer Tories who are storming into libraries, filming everybody and calling people pedophiles. That's kind of your, you know, QAnon, really quite freaky deaky, old men side of things. So the fact that that's where he's aiming his dog whistles is frightening and it is worrying. This does reek of desperation for Rishi Sunak. He knows that he can't compete with Liz Truss. He's somehow fallen into the trap of being held responsible for all the things that the Tory membership didn't like about Boris Johnson, whilst also being hauled over coals for being perceived as the biggest traitor to Boris Johnson. He's also boxed himself in, I think, by saying to people, hang on, here's an economic orthodoxy and I'm sticking to it, whereas Liz Truss is like, tax cuts, you can have as many as you want. I don't care. I don't have to pay for it. Fuck it. 
And so I think that that real lack of optimism has meant that he's instead opted for the most reactionary possible form of politics, of course, punching down at immigrants and at trans people and at waving his arms madly at the Daily Express going, please notice me, dear God, please notice me. So yeah, you're right. It is pathetic. But in terms of what it then launders into mainstream conservative opinion, that is something that's worrying. And as we've seen over the past few years, that firewall between the traditional electoral right wing in, in this, this country and the you know street, thuggish, far right of the right wing in this country has totally broken down. We saw that around Brexit and now we're continuing to see it if Rishi Sunak is making these references to, you know, the far right storming libraries to, you know, tell children they're not allowed to hear we're going on a bear hunt from someone in a red wig and a silver dress. I'm still just in awe at the really clunky segue of what's the point in stopping the bulldozers in the green belt if we allow left wing agitators to take a bulldozer to our history, our traditions and our fundamental values. Those things have nothing to do with each other. Apart from, I suppose, this is both like hating young people because protecting the Greenbelt, I mean, I don't think this is the real problem with the housing crisis, but one of the effects of protecting the Greenbelt, which hasn't shrunk, by the way, in the past few decades, is that house prices will remain expensive for the Tory base. You're saying, what's the point in keeping houses expensive if young people still get to have some cultural expression? We have to make them poor and we have to silence them. We have to take on young people on every single front. It's kind of the only way I can make one of those follow from, from the other. It's a bit like a Hussein Kesvani tweet, which is young people are less interested in playing musical statues at their reception school and pulling down statues of Winston <laughs> Churchill when they're bunking school. Like it's something which is totally outrageous. But do go on. I interrupted you. No, I was going to ask a question. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you put that in there. I suppose my point was going to be about why Rishi Sunak is doing this, because I mean, it seems at this point obvious, you know, ballots have already gone out. They went out today, I think, for the Tory leadership election. He's way, way behind you know, on all of the polls, it seems very clear he's not going to win this. And so for me, if I was Rishi Sunak in this situation, and obviously, we probably don't have that much in common. But I would think, look, I'd prefer to be the guy who was a chancellor who did furlough, and who stood in a Tory leadership race, but was a bit too technocratic for the members. You know, you can sort of go out as someone who, like the liberal Cameroons, and people who write in, you know, Times comment pieces, etc, etc, they can say, oh, well, he was the nice guy, he was actually too nice for the Tory members. Instead, he's going to lose, and he's also going to lose while you turning on everything he said a week ago, and lose being like so obviously desperately lashing out at any minority he can find to try and catch up. I just, I, I don't see why it's even in his self-interest to do this. I mean, look, he's going down flailing, okay? I mean, I think that he might have one eye on his future political ambitions, even if he does lose this leadership race. He might be thinking to himself, well, can Liz Truss really beat Keir Starmer? I don't know. There's been an awful lot of volatility in terms of the top of the Tory party over the past six years. So maybe his turn to launch another leadership bid won't be that long away, in which case, do you go down a Rory Stewart kind of route. I didn't leave the Tory party. The Tory party left me. Try and make a living on Radio 4 and making podcasts about, you know, how to have a civilised beat. Or do you acknowledge the fact that the Tory party membership has really changed in outlook quite fundamentally and that's still going to be the political complexion that you might have to win over later down the line? 
I also think that there's an element to which you have to get your head around the fact that this is just a really badly strategized campaign. This is something which I thought to myself when he was doing the interview with Andrew Neil on Friday. Now, what we learned from 2019 is that the usual rules of media scrutiny do not apply to those who feel themselves to be above them. Jeremy Corbyn subordinated himself to an Andrew Neil interview. Boris Johnson went, fuck that. And it was totally fine. It didn't have any impact on him whatsoever. And it was only a handful of nerds writing columns for Huffington Post and The Independent who thought, this is very bad, Boris Johnson, you're a naughty boy, you have to do this interview. But actually, the electorate didn't care. And I imagine the Tory membership care even less about the fact that Liz Truss skipped out on that Andrew Neil interview. Rishi Sunak, however, went for the Andrew Neil interview. I don't think that that's a particularly targeted use of his time. You're appealing to a mass audience, not necessarily the audience that you need to win. And you're putting yourself through an interview, which is going to make you look tetchy and unfocused. And when Liz Truss isn't doing one, you are automatically going to look like the worst of the two. So that's quite an obvious thing that he should have avoided. And he didn't. So yeah, badly run campaign, I think, is the other explanation for the flailing. Boris Johnson is ending his time in office with as much grace and dignity as we've come to expect. While Brits suffer a cost-of-living crisis and our NHS faces collapse, he's been cosplaying as a soldier. And the only part of Boris Johnson's job that he actually wants to do involves, you guessed it, getting cushy taxpayer-funded jobs for his friends. Yes, it has emerged that Boris Johnson is planning to pack the House of Lords with his cronies in his last week as PM. And it was all revealed, somewhat bizarrely, by former Prime Minister Gordon Brown. So he's looking very serious after coming into the possession of documents shared by the lobbying firm run by Linton Crosby. He's writing this in The Guardian. And he says, The document proposes that Johnson ride roughshod over every convention and standard of propriety in an effort to secure political nominees who will vote for the Tory government, especially its bill to disown the international treaty it has itself signed over Northern Ireland. This draft plan to add 39 to 50 new Tory peers includes an extraordinary requirement that each new peer sign away their right to make their own judgment on legislation that comes before them. They have to give, the paper says, a written undertaking to attend and vote with the government. Now, the numbers alone would make this plan pretty extraordinary. It is convention that outgoing prime ministers give out peerages as they leave office, but a figure of 39 would be more than double those given out by any previous prime minister. And the idea of binding the votes of peers is also pretty unusual. The Lords is supposed to provide scrutiny for legislation, not rubber stamp it. And the method proposed to ensure loyalty is also pretty gross. So Brown explains, The plan also legitimises straightforward bribery. In a throwback to the old corruption that was a feature of 19th century Tory Britain, compliant lords will be rewarded with lucrative special envoy positions, and while those who fail to attend votes will be placed on a name and shame list. CBEs and additional titles will be handed out, responding to what is an apparently insatiable demand for the already ennobled to be showered with additional honours on top of their peerages. I mean, Ash, the Lords is a pretty shoddy organisation. I'm not sure we feel particularly precious about the conventions of who does and who doesn't get a peerage. But this idea that you just push 39 to 50 people with close connections to you into the House of Lords and then offer them further goodies if they back your policies, it's kind of taking this to the next level, isn't it? It's absolutely taking the piss. But 
Boris Johnson is using every lever available to him to warp the system in his and the Conservatives' favour. So I don't actually blame him. He's doing something which is entirely within the law, which is take a bunch of cronies who have either worked to secure your personal political advancement of that of your party. There was also, of course, a recent study done which showed that once you hit the three million pound donation line for the Conservative Party that you tend to be nailed on for a peerage. And it's a grift which works really well for them. Now, we've known for a really long time that our constitutional arrangements are not at all robust, that they work on everyone playing by some sense of propriety, which everyone is automatically supposed to have. And along comes Boris Johnson who goes, nah, actually, that doesn't apply to me. And we go, oh, well, um, we can't do much more than a very stern finger wagging. I think there is also a political purpose to this, as well as a uh, just obvious, quite naked, corrupt purpose of rewarding those who've been personally loyal to you, is that, of course, the Lords have a role of scrutinising legislation and passing it back down. And that means when the government tries to force through legislation, which is wildly unlawful, conflicts with other existing bits of law and could be open to challenges in the court, Lord sends it back down. Now, as every Tory leadership candidate has expressed an interest in scrapping the Human Rights Act, doing all sorts of things which totally tear up the UK's pre-existing commitments to international law, having a House of Lords stuffed to the gills with cronies rather than experts is something which just helps that process a little more along the way. So you've already mentioned that donating to the Conservative Party can help you get a seat in the House of Lords. Let's take a bit more of a detailed look at the proposed clutch of new peers. The Telegraph reports on a list of candidates that is currently circulating among civil servants. As usual, of course, those who donated to the Tory party or even Boris Johnson directly come out on top. David Ross is one of them. He's a co-founder of Carphone Warehouse. And by February 2020, he had donated £700,000 to the Tory party and £10,000 to Johnson's 2019 leadership campaign. Perhaps most importantly, he also sorted out a £15,000 exclusive holiday in Mustique for Boris Johnson in 2019. Next up is Ben Elliott, who is not a donor to the Tories, but rather their most lucrative fundraiser. Elliott is the nephew of Camilla Parker Bowles, and his high society connections landed him the job as Tory party co-chair. In that role, he raised £37.4 million in the three months before the 2019 election alone. Elliot has been accused of selling access to ministers in exchange for big donations to the party. Finally of note is this lady, Lubov Chanukin. She's the wife of Vladimir Chanukin, a former deputy minister of finance in Vladimir Putin's government. She has paid thousands to play tennis with Boris Johnson and has donated nearly £2 million to the Tory party. In exchange, she has apparently had extraordinary access to Johnson's government. The Times reported that she repeatedly lobbied ministers against raising tax on the super-rich, even handing them research from Ernst & Young about the importance of the ultra-rich to the economy. Ash, the feeling always strikes me when we go through these lists, and we do it you know, fairly often on the show because it is pretty shocking how you get to be a legislator in this country. It's kind of cheap, isn't it? You know, like, I couldn't afford this, but £2 million, that's like, a, it's like two houses in a pretty run-down area of London. And for that, you can get a seat in Britain's legislature. 
That was the thing that really astonished me about the Richard Desmond property development story. Do you remember that? So he purchases mm. a dinner at the cost of, say, I think 10,000, 12,000 pounds, makes a chunky donation to the Conservative Party. And then because he wants to develop a property in Tower Hamlets, he's able to utilize his relationship with the, I think it was either the Housing Minister or the Communities Minister, I forget which one, in order to dodge paying a 50, five million pound tax bill. Now that, if you're somebody like Richard Desmond and you are obscenely wealthy, is absolute peanuts in order to totally warp the decision-making process in your favor. So you're right. It is cheap. And it's because the Tories have cheapened our democracy. They've flogged off every single aspect for it. And because they can't be trusted with the economy, Michael, they don't even get a good price for it. I always get those Instagram ads, which is sort of telling you some weird app that's going to tell you how to invest money and get some return. It always says, you know, your money will be at risk. They're probably all scams. I've got absolutely no idea. But we should start one which wouldn't be a scam, which is say the best way to increase your pile of money is to donate to the Conservative Party or go to a Conservative fundraising dinner. Because as you say, you can spend, you know, 10 grand on a seat at a table, and then all of a sudden your billion pound development gets approval. Very, the returns are good. You can't lie. Let's go to our final story. Don't Pay UK is a campaign group calling for the mass non-payment of energy bills. They're aiming to get one million people to commit to not paying their bills this October, with the idea being that if enough people get involved, potential consequences for non-payment will be impossible to enforce. It is undoubtedly a very ambitious plan, and it sounds very hard to pull off. But it has already made waves in some surprising quarters. Money-saving expert Martin Lewis has mentioned the idea numerous times, including in this recent interview. The big movement that I am seeing is an increasing growth of people calling for a non-payment of energy bills process. So a so strike, mass non Effectively, a consumer strike on energy bills. And now Dominic Cummings has got in on the action. He tweeted a graphic from the group and said, this could be a big deal, much undervalued in SW1. SW1 is the postcode for Westminster. Cummings links to his blog in that tweet where he's written this. I've got a feeling that if a few people who understood campaigns started organizing a network to spread the message, stop paying bills, it could catch fire. And it could catch fire organically without organization and SW1 would panic. Threats count for little when people cannot look after their families. People won't starve. If you can't afford energy and food, then you will keep eating and stop paying energy bills. Some will try to organize others to do the same. So he goes on, if we all stop paying around here, what can they do? They can't send us all to jail. We can't afford to pay, so we should get others to do the same and pressure London. Maybe they'll have to let us off. So that's him you know, imagining someone discussing this campaign. And he says, this logic is rational. Usually this problem, bills, doesn't breach some hard to determine critical threshold. But the quality of the British state's contingency planning for emergencies has been terrible for many years, and the steps we started in summer 2020 to improve this have been largely abandoned. You've got lots of self-aggrandizement, as usual, but interesting that he's taking on board the possibility that this could be a big deal. Now, in that judgment, Cummings seems persuaded by a report from a focus group of Tory voters published on the website Conservative Home. So these are some quotes from the focus groups. They included this. I'm going to tell you something honestly. Now, a lot of people I've been speaking to have literally point blank told me that if they start to increase anymore, they will point blank refuse to pay the bills. And in my friend's words, and everyone should, what will they do then? 
another participant said this. What the hell? These politicians need to listen to us. If we've got no enjoyment, you're just working to pay bills. And even when you're working, you're not able to pay them. Somebody needs to do something. Now, those were quotes from participants in these focus groups. Remember, Tory voters. The person who conducted the focus group, though, wrote this. A few months ago, most working class voters put rising living costs in context. They believed national COVID debt and the Russian invasion of Ukraine had raised inflation in Britain and across the world. As such, while extremely concerned, they didn't blame the government. Things are now changing and the Tories ought to be very worried. Many people face the prospect of their money literally running out. Their comments about boycotts were a natural response. What else can they do? Ash, and we've discussed this campaign a few times now. I do, you know, when I first heard about it, I was like, that's going to be really, you know, difficult to organize that many people without a massive organization. But it is interesting in these surprising places where it seems to be getting traction. Do you, do you see sort of mass resistance as inevitable at this point, given that people are literally not going to be able to pay their, their energy bills? Well, look, I'd say nothing is inevitable, but I think it's highly likely. So I've been talking to some of the individuals from the Don't Pay campaign. And in terms of the demand for the leaflets, which is kind of the organizing stage where they are now, it has been increasing exponentially. So over the course of the weekend, they've had 1,700 orders for leaflets. So I think it's highly likely that we're going to be looking at a week in which they are distributing 1 million leaflets. Considering this campaign didn't really exist until a few weeks ago, that is an enormous logistical achievement. The second thing that they've done is have a bit of an organizing call. Now, I've been told that participants on this call included Tory voters, moms, religious leaders. That's telling you that there is support emerging from political quarters and aspects of civil society, which don't normally get drawn into, you know, what's the new left-wing thing. So this is a demand and a call to action, which is transgressing usual subcultural and political party alignments. And I think the third thing, which is smart about this campaign, is that it has chosen one single target, which is energy companies. Now, the cost of living crisis is going to be felt an awful lot of different ways. Michael, I know that you talk about the increasing price of rent an awful lot. For other people, that's going to be manifested in increased interest rates. For some people, the cost of filling up their car is going to be the thing which really inhibits them from being able to get to work. For others, it's going to be the cost of food and groceries at the shop. But anyone who's got a house to heat has to pay energy bills. So this was actually, I think, a really smart choice of target. The energy companies, as we know, have been posting absolutely obscene profits, five-fold increase in profits for Centrica, two-fold increase in profits for Shell. And people can see that it's simply not right. You can't tell the country you're all going to have to get poorer after a decade of lost wage growth. And for some people, there is absolutely no give whatsoever. A recent survey found one in eight people are already at the point where they feel there are no areas in their life where they can economize even further. And the sums of money that they're having to find in the course of you know, a year is perhaps £1,000, £1,500, £2,000. People can't just magic that money out of their ass, particularly when businesses are using the inflation crisis as an excuse not to bolster their pay packets. So I think that this has got the potential to be a really big campaign. People are talking about it in potential being a poll tax moment. So we'll see if this kind of demand for leaflets that I think 
a really astonishing support that they've gotten from unlikely quarters translates to really effective on the ground organizing. But this is a campaign to watch. How would you get the, I suppose the whole point is you, you prove you've got the critical mass before you do it, because otherwise, you know, the idea I presume is that if you get enough people not paying their bills, you clog up the courts. You know, if you don't pay a bill for long enough, you might get a county court judgment, but that has to go through the courts. If you've got a million people who haven't paid, that's obviously going to become quite difficult. Have you got any sense of how is everyone going to know that other people are doing the same thing? No, the sequencing, I understand it, is to get a million pledges. And so the million pledges are supposed to happen before the October price cap lift. So the idea is that before the price cap is due to go up, which will stick households with bills around £3,850 by some estimates, you are going to have forced the government into negotiations with the energy companies. So the idea is you get the million pledges. But of course, a pledge only works if you're serious about carrying it out, word to Keir Starmer. So the idea is that if you've got a million pledges, you've got a million people willing to cancel their direct debits on October the 1st, then you do clog up the courts. They can't disconnect everybody. There is something which is quite important to point out, which is that the Don't Pay campaign, as I understand it, haven't asked people on prepay meters, which is you know the gas and electric key, participate. Because obviously, if they don't pay, they immediately get cut off. But for anyone on a direct debit, the gamble is that the energy companies aren't going to be able to cut everybody off and that the million pledges itself can be enough to force the government to make commitments on keeping energy bills at a relatively affordable level. Yeah, I mean, that is going to have to be, I think, the top priority of the next Tory leader, unless, you know, unless they're a complete idiot. You know, because I mean, for their own survival, I'm not expecting whoever wins this race to care about people going cold this winter. But this is the number one issue facing everyone. So I, w- I would be surprised if they don't come up with some, you know, something at least tokenistically, which can help people in this regard. But obviously, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. Unfortunately, their priority is all about tax cuts, which is only going to make you know the situation with our services probably more difficult than it currently is. And we're not hearing nearly enough about what support they're actually going to give people who really, really need it right now. So you know, I, I suppose we weren't expecting anything else, but it has been a depressing conservative leadership campaign. The only upshot being that I don't think either of them have a kind of positive vision that could bring the country round. So we could get a Labour government, although I saw a poll today um, for, from Redfield and Winton that has Liz Truss favoured to be Prime Minister over Keir Starmer. It has been Keir Starmer for the past weeks. She's just overtaken him. So a little bit worrying there. If you're a Keir Starmer stan, or if you're anyone like myself, to be honest, who wants to get rid of the Conservatives. Ash, it has been a pleasure being joined by you this evening. Thank you for having me. I'll see you next Monday. I'll see you next Monday. And I'll see you all on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.